Great job, Jacob, worship team. Thank you so very much. It's good to see you this morning. Always good to see you. And today we're going to wind up our sermon series on rebuilding the church. And I realize that starting with chapter number 9 today and going through the end of this book of Nehemiah, I am skipping several chapters that deal with it, with the project, with the progress of the project, the difficulties encountered with the project. Uh, But the really important stuff, I believe, has been covered, and we're going to conclude today talking about the spiritual implications of rebuilding those walls. Now, if you'll remember, for those of you who were here last Sunday, I shared with you it's not about the walls. It's about what goes on inside the walls, the worship that takes place. And I'm going to, I have a whole lot of scripture probably that I'm not going to share with you this morning verbally, but it's there for you to read because we're going to be covering chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 this morning. Don't let that scare you. I'm not going to be that thorough in covering them, but uh, I'll have you out of here before noon. But I want to begin by saying this. Had you, had you been in the city of Jerusalem at the time when these walls were rebuilt by Nehemiah and the people of Israel, here in chapter number 9 you would have witnessed some very unusual sights and probably heard some very unusual sounds. There were literally people in the streets crying out to God, confessing their sins with weeping, and doing it openly and publicly and without shame. You would have seen people wearing what was called sackcloth. It's actually a very uncomfortable burlap-type material. And they did that as a symbol of their humility and their repentance. And you'd see them pick up dirt and, and literally throw it on their own heads. Again, a sight that was a custom in Bible days when people really got serious about getting right with God. You see, when we get right with God, we bring the glory to God that He so richly deserves, and we will be blessed in the way that God wants to bless us. Now, this may seem like a really dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Not because you're dumb people, but just because it's dumb question. How many of you want the best of God's blessing upon your life? The secret is being right with God. The secret is being right with God, and the people of Israel realize that. So I've titled this final message in this series, Confession, Consecration, and Celebration. You see, when we turn away from God... He pours out judgment and He pours out condemnation. But when we turn back to God, He pours out blessing after blessing after blessing. You see, the problem is that the devil knows that. Our enemy knows that. So he's going to do all he can to keep us from getting right with God. So my, my message within the message this morning is if you're not saved, get saved. Get right with God. Don't let the devil get you off track. And I'll also say this. If you are saved, but you're not right with God, I mean in right fellowship with God, you need to get right so you can have the best of God's blessings. Amen? 
<clears throat> now, a, a very familiar verse for you. Jesus said in John chapter number 10, verse number 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The reason I'm including this scripture in this message is because you can't expect to have the abundant life if you're not willing to get right with God. There's another verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 8, where the Apostle Peter adds this. You believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Again, don't expect to find joy that you can't put into words if you're not willing to get right with God. We can't have a half-hearted, fence-sitting, weak-kneed, watered-down, anemic approach to faith in Christ and still expect to find God's best for our lives. It just not gonna, it's just not going to happen. So anyway, here's how revival starts. It starts in verse 5 of chapter 9 and runs through verse number 38. Um, it's the prayer of the people. It's the longest prayer in the entire Word of God. And it's the prayer that the people of Israel prayed after the walls have been rebuilt. And in this prayer, they recount the story, the entire story of the people of Israel's history. How God would bless them, and then they'd forget about God, and they would turn to sin, and, and God would judge them for their sin, and then uh, they would repent and return to more blessings. We call it the sin cycle. We see it throughout Scripture. God's people rebel against God. God turns His back on, God, uh, on the people. The people repent. God restores His blessing and his, his favor with them. And it just goes over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. And I just have a feeling that too often it still happens today. We experience the blessing of God. We become comfortable with the blessing of God. And then gradually we begin to pull away from God. And we find ourselves rebelling against God. We don't see so much blessing coming to our lives anymore until we repent and come back to God. And then he restores his blessing. It's been said by someone much wiser than I. That those who forget the past are determined to repeat it. I'll encourage you to read this entire prayer in Nehemiah 9, 5 through 38 on your own time. Because it's proof positive of this verse that's a very familiar one to you. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This chapter 9 of Nehemiah is proof positive that what God said through that verse is true, and I believe that it's still true today. If my people. If my people. And here's the thing. You heard me give you the title of the message, Confession, Consecration, and Celebration. We're never going to get to the celebration part until we start with the confession. Sin will come between us and God. It will rob us of our joy. It will rob us of our song. So I wanted to give you to start with this morning three basics that you're going to find in their prayer of confession in Nehemiah 9. You'll find Israel's God. You'll find Israel's guilt. And you will find God's grace. 
I'll start with Israel's God. This is a God-centered prayer. If you look at these 30, 30, what, four verses, and took out all the references to God, you would find that it's a much, much shorter prayer. Too many of our prayers today, I fear, are man-centered. They're all about what we want, and not so much about what God wants. You see, real confession is based on the character and the nature of God. And we see from the very beginning of their prayer here that their God is a glorious God. I like that. Uh, if, If you look at verse number five, look at it with me. It says, then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, the rest of them, they stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Everything that the devil does, friends, ends in misery. But everything God does ends in glory. We are saved by grace. It ends in glory. Jesus died on the cross, but he arose in glory. He had a glorious birth, a virgin birth. He had a glorious life, a perfect life. He never sinned in word or thought or deed. He had a glorious death that was a sacrificial death for the sins of the entire world. And he had a glorious resurrection. We serve a glorious God. Make no mistake either that he's going to be glorious when he returns to this earth. The the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says it this way in chapter number 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left... We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That, my friends, is going to be a glorious day. Amen. Amen. Their confession of the people, the confession of the people of Israel in chapter 9 was based on the character and the nature of God. And only a glorious God can provide the kind of forgiveness that is needed by, like, by people like these in our text and by you and I that are here today. Only His forgiveness it makes it possible for our sins to be taken away. Aren't you glad that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus this morning? Hallelujah. It's going to be a glorious forgiveness, a glorious mercy, a glorious grace. And a glorious eternal love that we're going to live forever with Jesus. We also see in their prayer that their God is a powerful God. Verse 6 tells us and begins talking about creation. Now throughout the Bible, God reminds us of his amazing creative nature. He points us back to the first verse of the Bible that says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he reminds us there of how this all started. And I, I just have to wonder if we need some reminding of how it all started. You see, science is trying to tell us that it began with a big bang millions of years ago. And this concept of, of millions of years tries to erase what is actually a 6,000 year Bible history. 
We have scientists that are desperately looking for some connection to monkeys when they ought to be looking to be reconnected with the maker. Amen? Uh, we're, we're still searching for those little green Martians that aren't out there. And if we just open our eyes a little bit, we could look into the face of the extraterrestrial that is out there. And we could return to him and we could be welcomed into his home beyond the stars. You know, it's wonderful that as we pray to our Father in heaven, he's the same God that created everything that is. The same one. We're told that light travels at 186,000 miles every second. Now, I had to find, actually my calculator wouldn't calculate this, so I had to ask Google. And Google gave me this answer. If light travels at 186,000 miles every second, that's 6 trillion miles per year. And yet the Bible tells us the closest star to our solar system is four light years away. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across it. And that's just one of 100 million galaxies. How many of you know we serve a big and powerful God? Think about that. We can't even fathom those kinds of numbers. And that same God of creation is powerfully big in things like mercy and grace that we need. I think he can handle it, don't you? Let me just speak for a second about grace and mercy. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting something bad which you do deserve, right? I saw this example and I want to share it with you. Because in practical terms, this is how that looks. Suppose you're going down a highway in a 55 mile an hour speed zone and you're driving 90 miles an hour. And you look in your rearview mirror and you see red lights flashing. You pull over to the side of the road and the policeman comes up to your car and tells you that you're doing 90 and a 55, but you tell him you're hungry and you're heading to the drive-thru at McDonald's. And then you begin to beg and plead and he agrees not to give you a ticket. That's mercy. But what if he then reaches into his pocket and pulls out a $20 bill and says, dinner is on me. That's grace. And that's also likely not to happen. So, <laughs> just wanted you to know that. But friends, as sinners, we deserve hell. We don't deserve heaven. So thank God for his great mercy and his grace. Hallelujah. We see in their prayer that also... God is a caring God. You find that in verse number 9. God hears when we cry. He didn't just create the universe and then abandon it. He is personally involved in you and I and the affairs of our life. We're part of his creation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them shall fall to the ground apart from your father? 
If God personally conducts a funeral for every disease-filled fowl that falls to the ground, how much more do you think he cares for us? The psalmist said in Psalm 147, 9, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He said in verse 4 of that same chapter, he determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. Jesus said in Luke chapter number 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I won't go there. I'll just say some of you make that counting easier than others. But fear not, friends. Jesus went on to say, you are more valuable than many sparrows. He knows everything about us. He's personally involved with us. He is a caring God. Years ago, Bette Midler sang in her song from a distance about God. Let me just say to that, God is here. God is close by, and God wants to be personally involved in every part of our lives. He knows the deepest needs of our heart, and He wants to help. But we have to let Him. We have to let Him handle our lives. He's a caring God, and He's a mighty God. Glorious, powerful, caring. And what the people of Israel are doing here in chapter number 9 of Nehemiah is they're confessing all of those things to God. They're confessing. Just come and they're just coming and they're telling God like it is, God, you're powerful. God, you're glorious. God, you care about us. That's what it means to confess, friends, to say the same thing that God is saying. God wants to demonstrate His power in each one of our lives. He wants to demonstrate His glory to us. He wants to show us how much He cares. We're agreeing with God when we confess instead of offering excuses, making alibis, just ignoring the situation and sweeping it under the rug. Confession is what I call facing the music. Confession will lead to consecration. And ultimately celebration. Now let me talk about Israel's guilt. Quick English lesson for some of you who are teachers. Be patient with us. How many of you remember from English what a conjunction is? You remember what a conjunction is? It's a a word like but or yet or nevertheless. It's, It's... A word that connects two thoughts and and brings them together. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 15 and 16. They're praying, and they said, they're praying to God. You gave our ancestors bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. But... They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. Go with me to verse number 25. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless... They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. Go with me to verse number 28. 
But after they, let's do verse number 27. Let's just do it that way. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. Go down to verse number 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. You are a gracious and merciful God. You see how those words connect different thought processes God's done this and this and this, but you turned away from him, but you disobeyed him. Or, or you, you were captured by people who, who, you, who God had withdrawn his blessing from you and you were taken prisoner by other people. But God heard your cries and God heard from heaven and turned the situation around. Those conjunctions show the contrast between God's goodness and Israel's guilt, between God's salvation and Israel's sin, and between God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. Let me translate it according to my way of thinking. God, you've been good to us, but we've spit in your face. Now, that may be kind of a harsh interpretation. But we shouldn't be too quick to judge the people we're reading about for this because many of us treat the Lord the same way. God, you've been good to us. But we've, all, we've practically spit in your face in spite of your goodness. I heard an illustration of a little girl who had a baby doll that she would constantly hug. And then she would look at her baby doll after hugging it as if she were expecting the, the baby doll to respond to her. And finally she went to her mama and she said, Mama, there's something wrong with my baby doll. I keep telling her that I love her and I love her and I love her, but she never loves me back. You know, I read that and I thought, I wonder if God sometimes feels that way. I keep showing them how much I love them. But they never seem to tell me that they love me back. The people of Israel here are confessing their guilt for such actions to God in this prayer. And that brings me to Israel's grace. They received grace from God when they confessed. They deserved judgment, but in His mercy, God forgave them. And then he gives them blessing after blessing after blessing. Sixteen times in this chapter, the word give or gave is used. And in each instance, it's talking about God giving grace to his people. God gave them a land they didn't deserve. God gave them his word and his guidance. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them bread and water in the wilderness. And it wasn't a reward for their goodness. It was given to them in spite of their griping. That, my friends, 
is grace. God gave them victory over their enemies. He gave saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And they didn't deserve any of that, but God gave it anyway. It's a gift of grace. No wonder they're proclaiming, God, you're so good. You're so good. And you know what God's goodness does? It leads to repentance. That's Scripture. Romans chapter 2, verse number 4, Paul says, Do you not know that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Right there in Romans, the context tells us that Paul is talking about Israel, but he's also talking to us. God's first choice is to use goodness to lead us to him, but if we insist, he will eventually use judgment. To lead us back to him in repentance. So if you're saved but not in right relationship with God. Stop and think about how good God has been. In giving you the opportunity for salvation. That alone. Is worthy of your loyalty. And then not only that. The best part. He's given us his Holy Spirit. To help us live this thing called life. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Not only has God given us salvation and his spirit, but he gives us another gift that just keeps on giving. He gives us, according to Lamentations chapter 3, verse number 23, mercies that are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This ninth chapter is all about confession. Charles Spurgeon tells in his writings of the day that a lady approached him asking for prayer for her problem. You know what her problem was? Her problem was exaggeration. Spurgeon said to her, sure, I'll pray that you get the victory over lying. And she said, I'm not a liar. And he said, lady, you're never going to get the victory until you call it what it really is. True confession, true confession leads to consecration and celebration. And the last verse of chapter number 9 leads us to the transition to consecration. Look at verse number 38. It says these words. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, that may not seem like something important. But here's what's happening. After their prayer of confession, they literally write out on paper the steps that they're going to take and how they're going to live in response to those words. And then they sign their names to it. And you move to chapter number 10 and it lists 84 leaders who sign that pledge of consecration. Nehemiah is the governor. He signs it first, setting the example. And the reason I bring this up is I want to just say this to you. It's one thing to cry out in repentance at an altar and feel deep regret and cry tears. But it's another thing to get up and change. 
It's another thing. That is true repentance. We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning. Everybody wants the Savior, but not near as many people want to make him Lord, and that means let him call the shots in your life. He wants us to say, Lord, have your way in me. Change what needs to be changed in me. Take away the old things, the old things that need to pass away and make all things new. We need to change. Not just confess, but really, really pursue the change that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to our lives. Quickly, I'll share with you three aspects of their consecration. First, it was their application of the Word. They've heard the Word, and what did the Word of God do for them? It convicted them. It convicted them of their sinful ways. And now, here in chapter number 10, they're signing their names saying, we want to obey God. I gave you a scripture last week that illustrates it for us in this way. James chapter 1, verse number 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to take this rabbit trail. There's no point coming Sunday after Sunday to hear the word preached if you're not going to apply it. And the same is true with things like daily Bible reading. Why read the Bible if you're not open to change the way that it wants you to change? Secondly, they applied the word to their marriages. God knew that an unequal yoke would lead to constant conflict. Now, here's how it looked back then. Jews couldn't eat pork, but Gentiles could. Aren't you glad you're a Gentile? I'll just throw that in. But what he's saying is an unequal union of a Jew and a Gentile would result in fighting and quarreling. Fighting over money because the Jews had to give three different kinds of tithe. They had a temple tax. They had a harvest of fruit, fruit, first fruits. And they had what we call today the tithe. God knew that constant conflict would lead to occasional compromise. And that the one who was a believer would get tired of fighting over things like whether they go to church or whether they don't. That they'd get tired of fighting and they would eventually give in and compromise their faith. And the next step then becomes complete conformity where the believer then abandons their faith for the sake of avoiding conflict. Be not unequally yoked together believer with unbeliever. These are the same reasons, friends, that the New Testament cautions us with those words. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? You know why I'm mentioning this? I wish I had a dollar. For every time I've heard a young lady tell me that she's going to marry a guy, saying, I'm going to get him saved after we get married. Can I just tell you that's unscriptural? I can't find in my Bible any place where God recommends marriage as being a mission field. 
Most of the time, the believer doesn't pull the believer, unbeliever up. It happens the other way around. The unbeliever pulls the believer down. Now, we all probably know of some exceptions to that, and there are some, but realize that they are exceptions, and they're not the rule. Somebody said it this way, it's much easier, I like this, it's much easier to make hot water cold than cold water hot. And much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. Most of the time, the believer doesn't pull the unbeliever up. Now, let me move on. How many of you said amen to that? (laughs) Thirdly, they applied the word to the matter of keeping the Sabbath and in giving. Chapters 10, verses 31 through 32. I'll share them with you real quickly. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, and on and on. They are consecrating themselves to following the Sabbath and in giving. What does that mean for us? You know, we've observed in recent years that every great revival somehow renews interest in the house of God and in giving to the house of God. These people are going to observe the Sabbath and they're going to give to support the work of the ministry. And inevitably, when someone says they've had revival, but it doesn't bring them back to the church, something is wrong. If you've had spiritual revival and renewal take place in your life, you ought to want to be together with God's people, to hear God's word, to get fueled up for the Monday through Saturdays of our life. And I'll just say this before I move on. If that revival hasn't reached your wallet, it hasn't reached your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. They applied the word to their occupation of the city. We have to let our light shine where God puts us. Once the walls were built, you see, Nehemiah had to deal with another problem. There weren't enough Jews living inside the walls. Most of the Jews lived outside the wall, uh, outside the city in, in smaller villages. And Nehemiah needed more Jews to protect the city and also to be witnesses to the many Gentiles that were there. So he asks for volunteers, volunteers to move out of the villages and move into the city of Jerusalem. And then if that didn't work, he'd draft even more to do it. He says that one in ten... Look at chapter 11, verse number 1. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. One in ten. That meant they needed to come to town, sell their homes, and move into Jerusalem. Can you imagine... The church split that we'd have today telling you, you, okay, you need to move from, you need to move from out there at, at uh, Pheasant Run, Doug, 
and move into liberal. (laughs) He proved my point. (laughs) Can you imagine what that would do today? (laughs) You know, but it's not, it's a serious matter. How many of you would be willing to volunteer to do that? And how many of you does the word volunteer to do anything just scare the pants off of you? (laughs) You see, that's why this is important. These volunteered. And every church today has both groups, those who volunteer and those who have to have their arms twisted. Can I just close that thought process with these questions? Which one gets the bigger blessing? The volunteer or the one who has to have their arm twisted? Look for a tough job around the church. Not just an easy one. Be willing to get dirty and do for Jesus what no one else wants to do. Because consecration means making tough changes and doing hard stuff. They applied the word in honoring those who had come before. Chapter 12, and I know I'm moving quickly but in the scripture. But chapter 12 tells about people who had come before them and who had laid the foundation that they were now building on. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, and on and on it goes. You see, Zerubbabel had led a first wave to return and rebuild the temple. And they sacrificed. And they didn't get that done, but their efforts were not to be forgotten. They remembered those who laid the foundations that they are now building on. And I say that to say this. The work of the future is built on the work of the past. What would... What would be here at our location if not for those who came before us? I'm guessing that it'd probably be an empty building with the name Mack Truck on it. And all of that brings us to the conclusion and my conclusion. Confessing to God. Concentrating or consecrating, excuse me, and committing themselves to live in obedience to God brought them, lastly, to the celebration. It's found in verse number 27 of that 12th chapter. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. You know what's getting ready to happen here? They're getting ready to have a blowout. They're they're getting ready to have a big party. Notice the emphasis on joyful praise throughout that chapter. You can do this on your own time, but I'll, I'll give you this. Singing as part of the celebration is mentioned eight times. In chapter number 12. The word thanksgiving is mentioned six times in chapter number 12. The word rejoicing is mentioned seven times in that chapter. And musical instruments are referred to on three different occasions. They were going to have a party. A festival. And they even organized two separate choirs. One led by Ezra and the other by Nehemiah. 
And they marched around the wall, one group going clockwise and the other group going counterclockwise. And they met in the middle. And when they met, it wasn't quiet. It wasn't solemn. It was a celebration. Church doesn't have to be boring, friends. You know, most churches begin at 10.30 sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. You know, some criticize us Pentecostals for clapping our hands or, or swaying to the rhythm of a song that's being sung or, or cheering when we baptize somebody. I say, let's continue it. Those are things that really need to be celebrated. I'm glad to be a part of a church where Jesus Christ is celebrated. We have a lot to rejoice about, friends. We are part of the family of God. Jesus is going to come and take us home to be with him someday. That's reason for shouting, friends. That's reason for clapping our hands. That's reason for getting excited and enthusiastic to bring others in who can join our celebration. And finally, we come to verse number 43. It says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Wow. It was a shout that was heard all around. All around Jerusalem, outside the walls, everywhere. They could hear that there was a celebration going on inside. As I said earlier, I think it was a holy blowout. I'm sure that there are even some dancing a Pentecostal jig. Confession leads to consecration. That leads to celebration. Worship team, would you come please? As I close, let me just say this. When we get right with God... And I'm not just talking about getting saved. I'm talking about being in right fellowship with God. You can be saved and still be out of fellowship with God. Amen. But when we get right with God, we're in right fellowship with God. We shouldn't be able to help but celebrate and rejoice. It's time that God's people... Start acting like we're glad to be God's people. Amen. Would you bow with me, please? What are we singing? I don't even remember. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that we're your people. So thankful that you have called us out of the world. And you have brought us into your family. Jesus, we are just so thankful that our future is secure. That you've given us a future and a hope. That we don't have to just go through life waiting for the inevitable death to come, but we can rejoice knowing 
That if death does call us, not necessarily if, but when should you delay your coming. When that time happens, we can look at it as nothing more than a crossover gate to the greatest life that we will ever experience. Lord, we rejoice in that. You know, friends, I've had I've had heaven on my mind a lot the last few weeks. I really have. I, I, I think I even told Belinda in the office on a certain day this week, I'm really anxious for Jesus to come. I really am. Now, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of people I want to see brought into the kingdom before Jesus comes. But I got to tell you, I got a longing in my heart for heaven. I'm ready to see Jesus. I'm ready to reunite with loved ones that are over there already rejoicing with him. I hope you I hope you share that. I I, I hope thoughts of of death and and Jesus return are not scary to you. But that they're a goal to pursue. Can you imagine walking into his presence? Having Jesus throw his arms of love around you. Say, well done. Well done. You've made it. Enter into the joy that I've prepared for you. I want us to stand to our feet because here's the reality, friends. Between now and whenever that happens, whether by way of death or whether by way of being raptured out of this world with Jesus, we're here and God has us here for a purpose. And that purpose is to reach other people who don't yet know Jesus. And the way that that's going to happen is for us to pray, God, you've done it with me. You can do it again. We sang that song earlier. I said it was a new song, but I love the words to it. Let's sing it again.